Well, you know, the title of my sermon this morning is quite simple. It's the Holy Spirit, part two. I think it was April the 24th, my sermon that day was a foundation introduction to the Holy Spirit, part one. A little long time ago, that uh, due to schedules and due to the fact that there was a need to preach certain topics because of certain specific holidays, a gap was, was created. However, I'm here to tell you that hearing part one is not a prerequisite to understanding part two. My text this morning is the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 5 through 14. Of course, it's printed in the New King James in your handouts, together with the sermon outline for your easy reference. You know, for lack of a better description, this sermon is a scriptural dissertation, which I believe is probably well known to most of you here. My intention is meant to edify and to encourage you. So I want you to prayerfully consider the message, and when you leave here, continue to prayerfully consider it. Now walk with me through Psalm 1914, as I always do. And so, dear Lord, this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen? Amen. You know, theologically speaking, there is not a greater chapter in all of the Bible than the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. And without question, I think it's a high watermark of biblical revelation. You know, it leads us from salvation to glorification. It tells us how we are saved, how we are sanctified, and how we are secured. And the theme of this entire chapter is the Holy Spirit. But only one time is the Holy Spirit mentioned in the first seven chapters of Romans. But in this chapter, it's mentioned probably 20 times. You know, the Holy Spirit is to a believer what God, the creator, is to the physical world. Without God, all of this universe, none of this physical reality would exist. And likewise, without the Holy Spirit, we would not be saved. In a real sense, I think this chapter is really a commentary on 2 Corinthians 5.17, and that tells us that every Christian is a new creature in Christ. You know, we have been given a new Lord, a, a new standing. And Romans 8.1 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Then we have been given a new law. Romans 8.2 states, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now we see as a result of this we have been given a new life. And so Romans 8.5 states, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And this new life revolves around the Holy Spirit. It revolves around the life of the Spirit, the leadership of the Spirit, the love of the Spirit. You know, when I was young and I was in school, we were taught the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. Here we're taken to school again and given the four R's of the Holy Spirit. And these are regeneration, redemption, resurrection, and revelation. So the first thing we're going to cover in your outline is the regeneration of the Spirit. You know, 
in the eyes of God, there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who are lost and those who are saved. Those who are in Jesus and those who are in Adam. Those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. Those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. And this difference is absolute. It will never be absolute. You know, in my sermon of the Holy Spirit, part one, I I indicated that there are degrees of behavior of people in both categories. There are many people who are not saved, but they live clean, pure, highly moral and ethical lives. But on the other hand, there are those who are saved, who really do not mind the things of God and are not really living for God as they should. But regardless of where you may be in the ladder of life, you're either ascending toward heaven on the ladder of the Spirit, or you are descending into another life on the ladder of the flesh. Either you belong to God, or you do not. Now, a person may be in the Spirit, but living in the flesh. I think you can do many things in the flesh. You can preach a sermon in the flesh. You can sing a solo in the flesh. You can teach a Sunday school lesson in the flesh. You can drop a tithe in the offering plate in the flesh. I don't want you to get the idea that the flesh is simply going to nightclubs and living the high life, looking at pornography and telling dirty jokes. But listen, you cannot make the flesh better. And there's no need to try to spiritualize the flesh. This flesh cannot be spiritualized. We are to crucify the flesh. Romans 6.6 6 tells us, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. It's an important thing to remember that when Paul speaks of sin in a Christian's life, he is always very careful to identify that sin with the outer body, not with the inner spirit. You see, a believer's flesh is not redeemed when his heart comes to Christ. If my flesh were redeemed when I got saved, then I would immediately have become perfect. But I know that I am not perfect. My flesh is not redeemed. My flesh is to be crucified. But there are those who just live according to the flesh. It is the flesh that dominates every aspect, every part of their lives. And in our text, verse 5, we see the direction of the flesh. For it tells us, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. In other words, flesh people always think about how they can gratify their flesh, how they can satisfy the lust of their heart. It may be sexual lust, it may be financial lust, it may be lust for fame, it may be lust for friendship or a lust for popularity but they live solely for self-gratification. The question is always, what's in it for me? But then we are shown the destruction of the flesh. Our text, verse 6, states, 
For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, it is important to see and understand that Paul does not say that the mind set on the flesh leads to death. He says rather that it is death. You see, a person who is not saved is already dead spiritually. Paul is not stating a spiritual consequence. He is stating a spiritual fact. You see, and the man is not spiritually dead because he sets his mind on the things of the flesh. He sets his mind on the things of the flesh because he is already spiritually dead. Do you know why lost people act like lost people? Because they are lost. Listen, a person who does not know the Lord is not going to be condemned. He is condemned. He lives under the sentence of condemnation. John 3.18 states, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now I want you to understand the kind of mindset and mentality that Paul was describing here in verses 5 and 6. And I want you to write down in big capital letters, right beside those two verses, just one word, Hollywood. 98% of what you'll see on the movie screen is a movie that is the result of the flesh, motivated by the flesh, meant to appeal to the flesh, meant to inflame the lust and desires of the flesh, and made meant to make you made to think in a worldly, carnal, fleshly manner. Why do you think Hollywood turns out movies that defile the Lord Jesus Christ, degrade the ministers of the gospel, and debase anything that has to do with Christianity? It's because there is a war between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5.17 states, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. The only way you will ever win the war against the flesh is to walk in the spirit. For Paul tells us in Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Second in your outline, consider the redemption of the spirit. Our text, verse 9, states, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Now, to be in the Spirit does not mean that you will be sinlessly perfect. There's no such thing as a sinless or perfect Christian. And we should be glad that there's not, because if there were, I'm not so sure we could really be comfortable around him. To be in the Spirit simply means for the Spirit to be in you. In verse 1, Paul speaks of the saint being in the Savior. But in our text, verse 10, he speaks of the Savior being in the saint. He says, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, the saint in the Savior denotes your position. 
But the Savior and the saint denotes your possession. Now, the flesh can be in you without you being in the flesh. You see, when you are saved, you did not turn over a new leaf. You get a new life. You get that new life by receiving the Holy Spirit. And this is so important to understand. When you are saved, you immediately receive the Holy Spirit. And the word dwell in verse 9 literally means to make yourself at home. And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does when you are saved. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart and sets up house and makes you his home. Now it is right here that some of our charismatic friends make a great error in judgment and scriptural misinterpretation. There are those who talk about a second blessing and they speak of the need, the need of Christians to receive the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, if you have not been saved, if you have never received the Holy Spirit, you don't need or know where you get a second blessing because you have never gotten in on the first blessing. As a matter of fact, Do you want to know what I think the second blessing is? The second blessing is learning all that you got in the first blessing. The third blessing is all that you have gotten in the second blessing. The fourth blessing is, and so forth. Now let me give you three words to always remember, and you will never be confused about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a child of God. The first word is the word person. Always remember that the Holy Spirit is not an it or a thing. It is a him, H-I-M. The Holy Spirit is a person, a real person, just as real as God the Father and God the Son. And we're given clue after clue in the word of God that the Holy Spirit has characteristics of personhood. He teaches He guides, he comforts, he disciplines. He can be grieved, quenched, lied to, tested, resisted, and blasphemed. He's called God, Lord. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of Jesus, the Comforter, the Advocate. Now the second word is the word possession. Every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit. He has all of the Holy Spirit he's ever going to get. The Holy Spirit is not given in pieces, nor is he paid down in installments. You get all of the Holy Spirit when he comes into your life to make his abode at salvation. Third word is the word position. You know, the Holy Spirit may not always have the preeminent position in your life that he ought to have. And that's where the problem comes in. You see, the question is not, do you have all of the Holy Spirit? The question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? We're told in verse 10 that it is the spirit of man that is redeemed, not the body. You know, my spirit is saved but my body is not. My body still gets sick, it still gets tired, it still gets hungry, it still gets thirsty, it's aging every day. The outward man is perishing. The inward man is being renewed day by day. 
But there is coming a day that this body will be redeemed, which leads to our third point. So number three, in your outline, consider the resurrection of the Spirit. Verse 11 of our text states, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. There is a day coming when this body will be raised from the dead. Romans 8, verse 23 says, And not only they, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, and that is the redemption of our body. You know, there are three theological words that are used and explained in the book of Romans. The first word is the word justification. And Paul primarily deals with that topic in the first five chapters of this book. In chapter 6, Paul deals with sanctification and how we are to live pure and holy lives. But in this chapter, Paul goes on to deal with glorification. Generally speaking, these three words deal with our past, our present, and future. Or they deal with our spirit, our soul, and our body. And this is what I mean. We have been justified in our spirit We have been sanctified in our soul. One day, we will be glorified in our body, our future. This morning, we are also dealing with our resurrection. The same Holy Spirit that raised the body of the Lord Jesus from the dead now dwells in our body. Therefore, we can be assured that one day, our body too will be raised from the dead. For me, it's a great mystery as it should be for you. And Paul describes it as such in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't understand how this body will be raised or what kind of a body it will be, but it will be raised and it will be a glorified body. Reminded of a slightly humorous story of an old man I heard about who had a tremendous love in the Lord Jesus Christ And he had a sturdy, resilient faith in the word of God. And he lived next door to a man who was an intellectual. And this man was always trying to make fun of his faith and to argue with him about salvation. Well, this neighbor was reading a magazine where science had determined that a man's brain was primarily made of phosphorus. As a matter of fact, the article said that scientists had determined that phosphorus was just about the foundation for everything. So he decided he would have a little fun at the expense of the old believer. And he went over to see him and said, Wow, you've got a real problem now with your faith. The old man said, Well, how do you determine that? The unbelieving neighbor said, Well, you say the Bible teaches that all the dead shall be resurrected, and we've just found out that everything is made of phosphorus. Now, if all the millions and even billions of people who have died and will die are to be given resurrection bodies, there won't be enough phosphorus to go around. The dear old man said, oh, there's no difficulty about that. He said, the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. There will be plenty of phosphorus for them that rises first. But you and the others like you would just have to scratch around for your own phosphorus. 
You know, the word of God does teach that there's going to be a resurrection. As I indicated, I, I don't know exactly what the body will be made of, but I can assure you that whatever it's made of, there's going to be plenty of it to go around for all those who are saved. Amen? And lastly, number four in your outline, consider the revelation of the Spirit. Verses 12 and 13 state, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You know, we're reminded here again that we are not to be limping in the flesh, but we're to be leaping in the Spirit. We are to live in the Spirit and leap in the Spirit and love in the Spirit. But we are also to be led by the Spirit. Verse 14 states, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. These are the sons of God. You know, we're led by the Spirit, not lost in the flesh. Now listen. The Holy Spirit leads us by leading our spirit. Proverbs 20, 27 says, The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. You see, many people get the impression that the spirit of God leads by feelings. We think we ought to do something and we feel good about it and then we do it. Quite frankly, that's a very poor way to live because the devil can manipulate feelings. Listen, the Holy Spirit does not lead the mind. He does not lead the emotions. He leads the Spirit over and over and over. We are guaranteed that the Spirit of God will lead our spirit. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, very familiar to you, says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. David said in Psalm 25, 4 and 5, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all day. And then again in Psalm 25, 9, David says, The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. The psalmist of old in Psalm 143, 10 said this, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. And last, listen to these verses in Isaiah 48, 16 and 17. Come near to me, hear this. I have, have I not spoken? I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Well, the fact of the matter is, we are told that the Spirit's leading will be clear. We'll know it. We will know it. It will be continuous. The Spirit of God will lead us if we'll be submissive to his leadership. It will be conspicuous. He will lead us in such a fashion that we will know in crystal clear fashion what it is we are to do. So we set out to do it in a humble manner and let the Holy Spirit move. 
Have you ever had the privilege of learning of or perhaps being present when an individual was wonderfully and preciously saved? Some come to Christ with concerns on what will be expected of them. I remember a client in my law office who had had such an experience in a local church. And he said to me, I want to ask you a question. He pointed to a can of snuff in his pocket. He said, I don't smoke, but I do chew. Believe me, that was patently obvious by looking at his teeth. He said, do I need to give this up in order to be a Christian? Of course, I told him, no. Then he said to me, well, what do you think I have to do about this? And I said, let me tell you exactly what you need to do. You need to take that to the Lord and ask the Lord what he wants you to do with that tobacco. He looked to me and said, well, I would really rather not do that. (laughs) Because I know, I know what Jesus will tell me to do. Without realizing, he was confirming his new relationship with the Holy Spirit. You see, That is the mark of the child of God when he's led by the Spirit of God. He knew in his spirit the answer. This is also a great verse that gives you assurance of salvation. You know, some people will come and they'll express they have doubts about their salvation. It's not unusual for Christians to doubt where they are in relation to God and his salvation. But there is one good way to test whether or not you've ever been saved. It's to answer this question. Have you ever sensed God's leading in your life? Has there ever been a time in your life that you could look back and say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, God led me to do this or to do that? Well, that is true. Then listen again to this verse. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Thank God that it is the Holy Spirit himself who bears witness to our spirit that we are indeed children of God. Amen. The service is over. I want you to go and consider all this and give it prayerful consideration. We will see you next week.